Welcome to the North Shore Church audio podcast. To find out more information about North Shore Church, please visit us at mynsag.com. We hope you enjoy today's message. Man, what a good Sunday. It is so great to see everybody. It's all the new faces. We are so glad to see you. Man, what, what Pastor RJ was up here saying, emotion activated God. Come on, somebody. That was good stuff, man. That was good. I felt like, man, maybe we should just scrap the rest of the day and let him go for it. That was some really good stuff. I love it. I hope you guys are doing good. It's good to see you. If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Daniel chapter 1. We're going to be there in the, just a second. Daniel chapter 1. It's in the Old Testament. Um, when Melissa and I were in Bible college, we had a requirement every semester for ministry. We either had to sign up for one of the traveling ministries. They had different teams, and they'd go out, whether it was drama or singing or, or children's ministry things or clowns or whatever it was. Or, or you could fulfill that ministry requirement by working in one of the local churches there in Springfield. And um, I, I did my traveling ministry requirements on the basketball team by doing silly skits that were radically embarrassing. Our coach made us do some of the dumbest skits that mankind has ever invented in front of churches. And, uh, and so Melissa, for the most part, my wife, did her ministry requirements by going into to the churches and working in the nursery and working in like the tiny traveler preschool age programs and different things like that. And so a couple of weeks ago, Melissa and I were painting one of our daughter's rooms and we were just talking about this and those days at CBC. And she was telling me about, you know, the churches that she worked at for her ministry requirements. And then then she says this. She says, Chris, I don't think I've ever told you this, but, and and I don't know, we've been married for about 14 years, for a little over 14 years. And um, I don't know about you, but if your spouse of 14 years says the words, I don't think I've ever told you this, how many of you know your antenna goes up real fast, right? You stop what you're doing and you lock in, you pay attention. You're like, what haven't you told me for 14 years? What have you been hiding from me? And you're like, is this good? Is this bad? I don't know. I'm kind of nervous. What is it? And she says this. She says, I don't think I ever told you that one semester I signed up for the puppet team. And you're like, what does that matter? But I was like, what? The puppet team? You know, and I was just like almost appalled, like, oh, I got to leave the room. You signed up for the puppet team. And she said, yeah, I, I, I wanted to try something different. I thought it may be fun. And this is, I totally get, this is one of the things that I absolutely love about Melissa. She's, she's fearless in trying new things. She'll just go out and try it, and then she'll be great at it. And it kind of drives me crazy. But she's just awesome and that she tries new things. And so she said, I thought it might be fun. I wanted to try something new. So that didn't surprise me. But the puppet team, come on. And look, there's nothing wrong with puppets. I love puppets. I've done puppet ministry. I love children's ministry. Anything we can do to reach kids and to teach kids about Jesus and, and, and to make a big deal about kids, I am all for. Like, like children's ministry, I am all about. The only reason like I was weirded out by the puppet team is because I remember the people that were on the puppet team. And I know this is going to sound incredibly shallow, and I'm repenting before I sin here, but the puppet team at CBC, it was kind of like the island of misfit toys on steroids, okay? It was just like, and you're like, oh man, that's mean. Like, look, if you would have come to my college, it's not mean. It's like, you know what I'm talking about. And, and I know that like in your schools, there were groups that were like odd. I mean, if you've never been to a Bible college, then you don't know odd circles, like, there were, some, there were some characters there. 
And it seemed like they congregated on the puppet team. And so I was like, Melissa, the puppet team? Come on. And she said, yeah, I only went once. <laughs> Whew, you know? I said, yeah, I didn't really connect. And it's a good thing I didn't know that before we got married, because that may have been a deal breaker. Like, the puppet team? I don't know. But you think back. Think back to your time in high school. Think back to your time in college. How important those circles were. Do you remember how important it was for you to exist and live in the right circle? How much pressure you were under to find the right group? And there were lots of different circles, and and you existed in many different ones. I mean, there was the the jock and the cheerleader circle, and maybe some of you uh, existed inside of that circle in school. There was the the brains, you know, the, the super smart group, and some of you existed inside of that circle. There were the band nerds. Some of you were, any band nerds here? Like a couple of you were band nerds, right? That was a weird circle because at one school I was, I was in the band and it was kind of cool and then we moved to a different school and nobody was in the band so I, I, I got out of the band and, and I was all over the place. Then I went to college and I said, yeah, I was a band nerd. And they're like, what, you were a band nerd? That's terrible. And, I, and so, so the band nerd circle was really confusing for me but, but it's weird because at different, different schools, Look at circles different, but the reality is that, that every single school that we existed in had circles. There was the alternative circle. Some of you existed in that. You used to be cool. You're not anymore. You're stuck in that alternative one. There was the, um, there was the, uh, the hangout by the back dumpster and smoke between classes circle. Some of you were in that circle too. But you knew that if you were going to survive, you had to find a circle. You remember the time you walked into lunch and nobody from your circle was there? How lonely and isolating that was, how scary that was. You're like, oh, I don't know who to sit with now because nobody in my circle is here. College was the same way, whether it was a sorority or fraternity or a team, the circle you were in mattered. And there's some of you students here today, we just prayed for you. I I want you to know, whether you're junior high or high school kids, I want you to know that we understand the social pressure that you felt or that you feel right now because we felt it too. We absolutely did. Come on, parents, moms, dads, grandpas and grandpas, didn't you feel that pressure? Yeah, let them know they're not alone. Come on, don't give me that half hand raise. I'm not gonna participate. Let them know you're you're not alone. We felt that too, right? We felt that pressure. Now that we're a little older, some a lot older, I won't identify who you are, but I would say we are so glad that we don't have to deal with those circles anymore. Aren't you so glad that you're not having to find the right circle to live in, not dealing with that social pressure anymore? As as an adult, you don't have to deal with those groups, those cliques, or those circles. And then we kind of think, oh man, I'm so free of that. Oh, I'm so glad that part of my life is over. I don't want to go back there. But I would suggest this morning that your circle still matters. Your circle still matters. In fact, I I believe your inner circle still matters. We're in this series called Decision Points, and this is the last sermon in this series of Decision Points. We've been looking at some of these major decisions that we have to make in our lives. And, And I would say that this decision, your inner circle, is going to be one of the most important decisions that you are ever going to make, not as a high school student, not as a college student or junior high or grade school, but as an adult. Your circle still matters. In high school, being in the right circle might make or break a year. As an adult, being in the right inner circle might make or break your legacy. Your inner circle matters. I believe this is 
possibly one of the most important decisions that you're going to make. Is is who's going to be in that circle? Who are you going to allow to speak into your life? Who are you going to allow to speak over your life? Whose opinion is going to matter in your life? Because the reality is everybody has an opinion about you. Yes? Everybody that you come in contact with, everybody that you interact with on Facebook, everybody has an opinion about you. Now, we can't listen to everybody's opinion. We can't let everybody's opinion affect us, but we have to choose. We, we have to decide. We have to determine who are those people that is going to exist in our inner circle that we are going to let their opinion about us matter. Your inner circle. Who in your life is going to have real significance, real personal significance, real spiritual influence in your life. Whose words, whose thoughts, whose opinions are you going to give weight to? Your inner circle matters. So in the book of Daniel, um, what we're going to see here on display in the first three chapters is this inner circle at work. This inner circle on full display. And so what happens in the book of Daniel as it sets up is... Jerusalem is going through this national crisis. They're they're in a very, very much crisis mode. So so Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon, and and he sends his army into Jerusalem. They come in, they attack the city of Jerusalem, and they completely ransack the temple of God. As they're ransacking the temple of God, they go into the holy place, in the most holy place, and they steal all the sacred relics and all the, the holy items, and they take them back to Babylon. Not only do they desecrate the temple in that way of stealing the holy items and the sacred relics, but then Nebuchadnezzar tells his generals, I want you to go and search the houses of the nobility and the royals in Jerusalem. And what I want you to do is find men, find young men who are strong, who are intelligent, who are athletic, who are popular, who are good looking, who have uh, expressed some real leadership ability. And I want you to find those men, and we're going to take those men with us back to Babylon, and we are going to train them in the Babylon University, in the Babylon College. And what we're going to do is we're going to um, ingrain our political thoughts and our religious systems and um, our culture inside of these people. And then... Years later, we're going to send these leaders back home so that their culture will begin to look like and reflect our culture, and that's the way that we are going to essentially take over the world is we're going to take their best and brightest, we're going to turn them into us, and then we're going to send them back out. The goal was to brainwash them, ingrain the religious philosophies and the cultural philosophies of Babylon into the future leadership of Israel. In Daniel chapter 1, verse 4, the second part of verse 4, is Nebuchadnezzar says, Choose these men and train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years. I want you to get this. They were to be trained for three years. And then they would enter the royal service. And so these men... Although technically prisoners of war, they were treated pretty good in the college. It was like a a full ride college experience and and all of their room and board was paid for. And not only did they get to eat in the cafeteria, they got to eat 
food from the king's table. And so though they were prisoners, they were eating like kings. And for three years, this education, this training was going on. For three years, they were being indoctrinated before they could enter the Babylonian court. Now, it's going to identify four men. Verse 6 says, Daniel... And Daniel's name means God is my king. Now, they, they changed his name in Babylon from Daniel to Belteshazzar to honor one of their gods. But Daniel's name means God is my king. And then his buddy, Hananiah, his name means the Lord shows grace. Hananiah's name was changed to Shadrach, okay? Um, Michel, whose name means who is equal to God, all of these names honor Jehovah God. His name was changed to Meshach. And Azariah, his name means the Lord, the Lord helps his name was changed to Abednego. So we got Daniel, and then many of you would know the, the Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You guys heard of them before, right? So these are these, these, are these four men. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah uh, were the four of these men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. Now this is an inner circle. This is Daniel's inner circle. These were his closest friends, his allies, his spiritual support. And together, these four prisoners are going to stay committed to God, even there as prisoners in Babylon, and they're going to have radical influence on the Babylonian culture. Remember, they were being trained for three years, and for three years, they got to eat food from the king's table. Again, though prisoners of war, they were eating like kings. Think about this. But something happened. Verse 8. It says, but Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. He didn't want that food because it was sacrificed to idols. So he asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. Now, God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel, but he responded. He said, he said look, Daniel, he said, I'm afraid of the Lord my king, who has ordered that you eat this food and wine. If you become pale and thin compared to the other use your age, I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded. He says, look, Daniel, I like you, your friends. You've always been kind, respectful, like you are good dudes. But um, if I let you eat something else, and if I don't feed you this, this food, it's my job to keep, keep you like fat and fit. Um, if you start looking like skinny and pale, I'm going to be in trouble. It could cost me my life. Verse 11, so Daniel spoke with the attendant who had been appointed by the chief of staff to look after Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And this is what he says. He says, please test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water. Daniel says, look, we don't want to eat that meat sacrificed to idols. Just give us vegetables and water. At the end of the 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Then make your decision in light of what you see. The attendant agreed to Daniel's suggestion and tested them for 10 days. He said, like, look, um, let's just do a test here. Let's just see how this plays out for 10 days. Like, let us eat the vegetables and water. Um, if we start looking pale and skinny and sick, then, and then we can change this. We can go back to eating the meat. Um, it's very, very low risk. And I want you to see something in this. In light of the current social and political situation that we find ourselves in, these four uh, Jewish men in this situation that they were in where, where they didn't want to engage, they didn't want to be a part of it, in the process, they didn't threaten anybody. They didn't broadcast their offenses for all to see. They didn't stage a protest. They didn't try to burn anything down. What these four men did is, is they just simply excelled in their studies. They were kind. They were respectful. 
They gave honor to appropriate leadership and authority that was in close proximity to their lives. These men handled things the right way. They acted like gentlemen. They asked an attendant, like, test us. We don't want you to take an unnecessary risk. We don't want you to get in trouble, but, but test us in this. We don't want you to get killed, but we don't want to eat the food that's sacrificed to idols either. So, so let's see if we can find uh, an alternative. Let's see, if we can, let, let's see if we can come up with an option or maybe something that might work, and then we'll try it for 10 days and then put the rest in God's hands. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work, but we're trying. We want to honor God, and, and if God blesses us in this, and then we'll continue with it, but if he doesn't, then it's up to you. We're not going to do anything to get you killed, and, and so he says, let's just give it a test, and let's put the rest in God's hands, and, and I don't think that we as believers, some of you are, are believers in here, you've committed your life to Jesus, I don't think that we often enough take steps of faith when God tells us to move, and then after we take that step, it, it, it's, it's a step that we can't complete on our own, and we have to step back and say, well, you know what, that's all I can do. I have to put the rest in God's hands. It seems like the only time that we put the rest in God's hands is when it comes to some sort of an illness that we can't do anything about anyway. You're like, well, it's up to God now. But, but the reality is there are times when God asks us to take a step that doesn't make sense in our society, in our culture, or in the physical realm. And when we take that step, we have to stand back and trust. And we have to say, you know what? If I moved, I'm going to trust that God's moving. And as Pastor RJ was saying, there's a motion-activated God. And when we draw near to God, he draws near to us. And sometimes we have to take that one step. And then we have to sit back and watch God draw near to us. And so he says, we don't want to get you killed. But let's eat vegetables for a while and let's see what happens. Verse 15, at the end of the 10 days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished than the young men who had eaten, who, who had been eating the food assigned by the king. And this was God's supernatural response to the decisions to, to honor these men and to honor and respect God. Verse 16, so after that, I'll say that again. So after that, after that 10 days, after that 10 days, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of the food and wine provided for the others. And, and when I've read through this before, I've always thought, yeah, they ate vegetables and water for 10 days. Wow, God is good, and, and God blessed them. But I always forget verse 16, because verse 16 says, after that, the attendant gave them only vegetables and water. And I'm thinking, for how long? Well, Scripture tells us that this was a three-year-long process. Think about this. Vegetables every day for three years. Blah, right? I mean, it does not get any worse than that. And I, I mentioned this in previous sermons because I noticed this a while back, and every time I read it, I just cannot let this escape my mind. It just absolutely blows me away. They didn't just eat the veggies for 10 days. They ate it for three years, and 10 days would be hard enough, amen? I mean, 10 days with carrots and celery and lettuce would be bad enough, but they did this for three years. I can't even imagine how difficult this must have been. Think about this. They would walk into the, to the, to the cafeteria every single day and, and all of these tables full of like prime rib and you walk and you just smell that prime rib and the chicken and the cheeseburgers and the pizza and, and all of this other stuff. And, and every day you walk over to your assigned table. There it is, C13. And there at C13, you get carrots 
broccoli, and lettuce. And they didn't even have ranch back then, so it didn't even taste good, right? <laughs> and, and it's amazing because I don't think we realize how much power food has over us. I, 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 years ago, I, I did a fast, and um, I, I felt like God was asking me to do a seven-day fast, and so for seven days, I just did water. And we do a fast here at, at church, usually in January, and this one I was just doing by myself, and and coming towards the end of the fast, man, I was hungry, like hungry, hungry. And, and I'd read some things that said, you know, if, if you do a fast that's longer than three days, then when you break that fast, you have to ease yourself into it with like grapes or, or like carrots or, or lettuce or something like that. And at the end of that, you know, I, and, and man, I was so hungry that my fast was breaking on Saturday night. I stayed up till midnight so I could eat, right? <laughs> I ain't going to bed. I can eat at 12.01. I'm eating at 12.01. And Melissa said, my wife, she said, well, what do you want? What do you want, Chris? Do you want some, like, carrots? Do you want some grapes? I said, I want a cheeseburger, and I want you to drench it with chili. <laughs> Not a chili cheese dog, a chili cheese burger. Like, I want something that used to be alive and breathing and has been killed, grilled, and put on the plate. I want to eat something like that. And I, don't give me grapes. Don't give me vegetables. None of that garbage. I want some meat. And, and it's amazing how much power food and a hungry belly has on us. And, and I say all of that to just, to just say, like, man, that would have been hard for three years. Yes? So I, I got a couple of points that I want to hit this morning. Number one is this. Where you sit matters. Where you sit matters. I suppose there would have been days that Daniel was thinking, you know what? I'm sick of vegetables. I'm going to sit at that table where they have prime rib. We're not required to eat vegetables. This is just a commitment that we all made to God. I'm going to go eat the prime rib. And in those days, Michelle and Azariah and Hananiah said, no, 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 Daniel. We're doing this to honor God. We have made this commitment together, and we are not going to defile our commitment to God. We are going to do this together, so sit down and eat your carrots. And then a couple of weeks later, Michelle says, uh, oh, man, I'm, just, it's, I'm having a bad day. I just need a cheeseburger. But these men all together, all sitting at the same table, said, you're not going to go get that cheeseburger. We're going to eat vegetables today. Because we made this commitment to God. We're not going to defile ourselves by eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols when we know how great our God is. We're going to do this together. And this is where the grind happens, where you sit. This is where character is developed. Character isn't developed in great victories, but in the daily grind. And it's doing the right thing today, and then tomorrow, and then the next day, and then the next day, and then the next day. And it's finding the right people and putting them in that circle with you that are going to help you and encourage you to do the right thing today, and then tomorrow, and then tomorrow, and then tomorrow. Those people are going to help you grow and encourage you and motivate you to be better. Because there will be times, listen, we all know this is true, there will be times that you are tempted to quit. And so where you sit matters. Because doing the right thing over and over and over and over can get really boring. Yes? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Like making the right decision, eating the right foods, and, and doing the right things over and over. It just gets boring all the time. It just, it's boring. 
Galatians 6.9 says, don't grow weary in well-doing. Don't get tired of doing the right thing. Don't get tired of making the right decisions. Don't get tired of having the right conversations. Don't get tired of following your spiritual disciplines. Don't get tired of thinking the right thoughts, Scripture says, because in the right moment, you will reap a reward if you don't give up. Don't get tired of doing it. And in fact, surround yourself with people that are going to encourage you to stay boring. Amen? Keep doing those right things. Keep doing those right things. Keep growing. Keep loving Jesus. Keep praying. Keep reading your Bible. Keep encouraging people. Keep being kind. Keep lifting people up. Keep coming to church. Keep going to life group. Keep surrounding yourself with the people of God. And sometimes it lacks some excitement. But you'll reap a reward if you don't give up. Don't get tired of it. Don't grow weary in well-doing. If you have someone in your life that's trying to talk you out of a stand that you're trying to make for God, if they're trying to convince you that, that your steps to honor God, your steps to grow, your steps to sacrifice to God, your pursuit of holiness is silly and foolish, if, if you have somebody in your life that's saying, you know, you need to back off, you need to slow down, you're doing too much, then you're sitting at the wrong table. You're sitting at the wrong table. Maybe you're like, man, I feel like I'm done with TV. I just feel like God's asking me to be done with TV. I feel like if I'm done with TV, my relationship with God will grow. And you feel like the Holy Spirit is telling you that. And somebody in your life says, you know what, that's dumb. That's stupid. I would never do that. I think you're crazy for even attempting that. that. That is completely ridiculous. Then you're sitting at the wrong table. Sitting at the wrong, where you sit matters. And this isn't those moments when all eyes are on you and everyone is talking about you and you're taking a big stand. But this is the, who are you quietly becoming on a daily basis in the midst of a culture that is trying to change your identity? Who are you becoming on a daily basis in the midst of a culture that is trying to change your identity? Because the culture in Babylon wanted Daniel, Michelle, Azariah, and Hananiah to be something that they weren't. And the culture that we live in today is working to try to change you into something that you weren't called to be. And so the decisions that you make on a daily basis will determine who you become. I don't think Daniel could have made it three years eating just vegetables if he was sitting at the table all by himself. And the best thing about this experience is that he wasn't delivered from compromise. It was that he had the opportunity to develop character. Where you sit matters. Number two, where you seek matters. Where you seek matters. So we're going to fast forward a little bit. These men had graduated the Babylonian school and they'd been sent out on their like job placement internship programs. And um, they were doing pretty well. They were in you know, Babylon. They were working. They were serving. And they were just successful. Uh, scripture tells us that Nebuchadnezzar was super impressed with these men. Gave them a high prominent position. And in Daniel chapter 2, um, we see this story where King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And... Um, King Nebuchadnezzar felt like there was something different and special about this dream, and he wanted this dream interpreted by his wise men. And so he called all the wise men that were there and available into his courtroom, and he said, hey, guys, I had a dream. I want you to tell me what the dream means. And the wise men said, okay, Nebuchadnezzar, tell us what you dreamed, and we'll tell you what it means. And, and he said to them, look, no, I know what you're going to do. I'm going to tell you what my dream was, and you're just going to make something up to try to appease me. He says, I don't want that to happen. I want to know what this dream means, so I'm not going to tell you what I dreamed. I want you to tell me what I dreamed and then I want you to tell me what the dream means he says I, I won't believe you if I tell you the dream but if you tell me what I dreamed and then what the dream means then 
You're believable. And, and that has a strange logic to it. Yes, I mean, we, we can get that. But these wise men said to King Nebuchadnezzar, you've asked a very hard thing. That's impossible. That made the king so angry, he ordered all of his wise men to be killed. Just furious. And so, a part of that group was Daniel. And so when the guard shows up to Daniel's house and begins to arrest him, Daniel says, hey, what's going on? He says, hey, you, you know, you're all dead. You're going to die because nobody could tell the king what he dreamed. And he says, hang on a second, take me to him. Daniel chapter 2, verse 16. Daniel went at once to see the king and requested more time to tell the king what the dream meant. Not just what the dream meant, but what the dream was and then what the dream meant. Then Daniel went home and told his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, what had happened. It, immediately what he does is he goes to his inner circle. There is a time of crisis. There is potential death. This is the most dire of situations, and he immediately goes to his inner circle. And he urged them to ask the God of heaven to show them his mercy by telling them the secret so they would not be executed along with the other wise men of Babylon. The first thing that Daniel does is he calls his inner circle up, and he says, hey, you guys need to start praying. And so the question when we talk about our inner circle is where do you go when trouble hits? What are the phone calls that you make? Who do you talk to? Who do you call first when chaos hits in your life? Who are the people that you're going to go to um, for advice? Who are the people that you're going to call first for prayer? When you get that bad diagnosis, when you, when you, when you get that um, relationship pain, when, when it feels like your whole world is crashing down, who are the phone calls that you're going to make? Who are those inner circle people that you know have a relationship with God that are going to be able to stand in prayer with you? When you're desperate for God to do the impossible, who are you going to turn to to help you get there? That's your inner circle. Your inner circle still matters. Where you sit represents a private dimension of your life, the daily character building. Where you seek represents a spiritual dimension of your life and those people who are going to lift you up in prayer. Who in your life is praying for you? Who in your life is praying with you? Who in your life is spending time on their knees talking to God on your behalf? Your inner circle still matters. It does. Number three, where you stand matters. Where you stand matters. Where you sit matters, where you seek matters, and where you stand matters. And we're going to close this message today by referencing a story that many of you are familiar with. The story of the, the three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace. Now, in this particular story, Daniel wasn't around, um, just the other three, but, but many of you remember this story. The king, the same king, Nebuchadnezzar, what he's done is he's feeling pretty good about himself, and so he builds a nine-foot-tall statue of himself. And he felt so good about that statue that he wanted to throw a party, and he invited the, the whole city to this party. And in this commissioning ceremony of this statue, he ordered that when the band starts playing and when you start hearing the music, everybody was required to bow down on their knees in worship of this statue. And he said, if, if you don't bow, you're going to be thrown into the furnace. You either bend your knee or you're going to burn in the furnace. And so he has the party and he's got the dancers and the musicians and the food and, and, and all of the, just the celebrities are there and everything's going on and then the music begins to play and everybody knows what they're supposed to do and everybody begins to bow and, and out amongst the sea of people there are Hananiah, 
Azariah, and Michelle just standing there. And everybody else is bowing and they're standing there in righteous, holy defiance. Well, some of the, the chiefs and the commanders, they saw these men and they grabbed them and they ushered them into the throne room of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar was furious, angry. Don't you know? Yeah, king, we know, we know. And, and he was going to give them another chance. He says, I'm going to give you one more chance. When the music plays, you need to bow. And this was their response in Daniel chapter 3, verse 16. They said this, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. Think about this. Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man in their world at the time. He literally held their life in his hand. O Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, and I love that line, and if you're a Bible writer, circle that or highlight that or star that. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. So what he's saying is, though you are the most powerful man on the earth or, or in our world right now, I serve a God that is greater than you. And in open almost belligerent, defiant, but very respectful, right? Because they was calling him your majesty. We want you to know, just to be clear. Like, my God is able to save me from the furnace. I want you to know, O king, that my God that I serve is stronger than you. He's more powerful than you. But I want you to know, king, that even if my God chooses not to save me today, I'll never bow to you because I still trust him and love him and serve him and follow him. I don't care what happens. And you know the story. Nebuchadnezzar was furious and he ordered them bound with ropes. Bound their hands and their feet. They threw them into the fire. Scripture tells us that the fire was so hot that the men who tossed them into the fire burned to death. It was that hot. But what happens when these three men were thrown into the fire? They didn't burn. Their clothes didn't burn. The only thing in proximity to them that burnt were the ropes that bound their hands. And there they stood in the fire, completely unharmed and completely free. Think about this, tied up, tossed into the fire, they slam down on their sides and they begin to smell something burning, like, uh-oh, this is going really bad for us. And they realize, it's just the ropes. I don't know what happened. And they begin to look at each other and they're getting up. And they begin to walk in the fire. And, and there they are. And, and the reality is sometimes God saves us from the fire, but sometimes God rescues us in the fire. Some of you are upset here today because you're here and you feel like God has let you walk through the fire, but what you don't see, what you don't realize is this fire isn't consuming you, it's just burning off the shackles that held you bound. This fire isn't gonna kill you. This fire is gonna set you free and you're thinking, Pastor, you don't know anything about me. Look, I don't have to know anything about you. All I know is that my God is able. But listen, even if he doesn't, I still trust him. 
and there's fires that we walk through that God is able to save us from. But even if he doesn't, we'll trust him. Where you stand matters. I think as believers, listen, I think as believers, we need to find us some friends. We need to find us an inner circle. We need to find us some even if he doesn't people that will stand next to us. Some people who are going to stand with us, beside us, fully trusting in God's ability to do the miraculous, but unwavering and unrelenting in their faith, even if he doesn't. I'm going to stand with you, friend, knowing that my God is able to instantly heal you from cancer. But I want you to know, even if he doesn't, we will never be defeated by it. We will never bend. We will never bow. We will never lose faith. We will constantly follow him. Even if he doesn't. Even if God doesn't choose to save me, it doesn't matter because scripture promises me that if I remain faithful, I will receive the crown in the end and the fire can't take that from me. The lions can't take that from me. The rope can't take, nothing can take that from me. Even if he doesn't, I don't care. You need to find some crazy, radically filled with the Holy Spirit, even if he doesn't people. That when you go to them and you say, man, I feel like God is saying that to me, they're going to say to you, man, that's crazy. There's no way that can happen without God moving in your life. I'm with you. I'm going to stand with you. I'm going to do it too. Even if he doesn't. Man, your inner circle still matters. We can't do these things on our own. We can't do these things on our own. There may be a time when the Spirit of God will ask you to stand amongst a sea of bent knees. You're gonna need to find some people that will stand with you. There may be a time when the Spirit of God directs you to stand in the midst of a fiery furnace. You're gonna need to find some people to stand with you. But listen, there is Jesus there as well. You remember what Nebuchadnezzar said? He looked into the fire, he said, we threw four, we threw three in there. It looks like there's four, and that one looks like he's a son of God. And it's great to go through the fire with friends. But no, you will never go through the fire alone because Jesus is gonna be there too. Find some people to stand with you. Your inner circle matters. Find the right people, find the right circle so you can develop the character, so you can pray together, so you can stand together. I want you to stand to your feet. We're just getting ready to close here. This is kind of our process. We're gonna pray. We're gonna let you go eat ice cream here in a second. Your inner circle matters. Your inner circle will affect you. It'll affect where you go, how you talk, how you spend your money, how you act. Show me your inner circle and I'll show you where you're going with the Lord. Your inner circle still matters. And so what I would say to you is don't let this happen by accident. Don't let your inner circle be dictated on proximity. Be intentional about who exists there. There's lots of ways to be smart about your inner circle. I mean, lots of ways, even through this church, the North Shore Connect ministry groups. A lot of people find some of their best friends that they'll ever have through ministry groups. Life groups, connect classes, friendships, relationships. I, I don't know, just be intentional about it. Let the Holy Spirit lead you and guide you. But, but I wanna say this. There is an inner circle that 
God wants you to exist in. And it's called the family of God. And you don't have to do anything to break in. You don't have to impress anybody. You don't have to change your clothes. You don't have to change your style. You don't have to change the way you talk or act. You don't have to some, have some sort of athletic talent or ability to break into this circle. All you need to come into this circle is a willingness to be accepted into the circle. The only thing you need to come into the circle of the family of God is the willingness to say, Jesus, I'm yours. Jesus, I'm yours. I know I don't deserve to be in that circle. I know that there's nothing about me that, that, that would enhance this circle. But Jesus, I can, I can see, like man, just in my mind's eye, I see this, I see this circle of, of believers here and, and, and somebody that is outside the family of God walking up and instead of tightening the circle, it just, Jesus compels us to open the circle and say, welcome, come on in. There's plenty of room because Jesus says he desires that nobody should perish and that all have relationship with him. So some of you are here today and you don't have a circle. There's an opening. And Jesus would invite you to be in his. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If you'd like to connect with us or if you want more information about North Shore Church, please visit mynsag.com.